an economic value to Wilson Volleyballs, which had 10 and a half minutes of screen time. The volleyball itself had 10 and a half minutes of screen time. Dude, that Wilson's, Wilson's relationship with Tom Hanks in that movie is priceless. I don't even know why they're trying to put a value on that. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Dougals, um, listen, we need to have a serious talk. So just, uh, you do one William Green interview, and then you're being mentioned as the heir apparent to the Ellen show? Like, don't let this fame go to your head, bud. I mean, it's hard not to, man. <laughs> when, when the fans come calling. You just give the people what they want, right? Give the people what they want. Unless it's pizza. Don't give the people pizza talk. No, pizza all too I much pizza is Too much sodium, bro. I will not let pizza slander happen on this uh, podcast. <laughs> pizza slander. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. So Anyway, what's up? Let's dive in. Everything's up. Every, well, no, actually, not everything's up. Um, not until the end of this week, because uh, there was some blood bath going on this week in the markets, man. It was a, which I know you're gonna be like, why are you looking at the market on a daily basis? Who cares about the market? <laughs> Look at it only in decades. But it, but it's a, uh, you know, it, we we were getting some some hits, some hits. People were screaming inflation. Yeah, especially the Bitcoiners. Um, I had a fun week in the market. I I liked it. I yeah yeah. The I kind of I didn't like it. Okay, good. Good. I kind of cheer for things to go down. And then all in all, I don't think things really went down. Yeah, I'll tell you what. The uh the people that were not happy about this week are the Taiwanese. Is that cuz they don't have access to like the latest movie releases or what's happening here? Uh the Taiwanese stock market crashed um pretty significantly. It like went into correction territory with the quicks. Did you read about this? No, I'm out of the loop. So it's basically a it's a warning sign. Not that we need these warning signs because we've seen this happen over and over again. But it's a warning sign on the danger of too much leverage and what happens uh, when margin calls start to unwind things pretty quickly. Um, so throw out a couple facts. But basically, the the Taiwanese stock market it ended up going down like about nine percent over the course of just a couple days. But oh, nine percent actually in one day. So it was the worst one day performance in the history of. Ooh. their market yeah it's pretty and crazy so is this directly tied to debt and margin calls or is that just one component like did it did it have a rough day which c triggered some margin calls which made the next day rough do we really know those facts um that what i'm reading is basically that is that it's it's a, it's because of margin calls i mean i don't know i'm not i can't look under the hood too much but the facts are that there's a 46 percent expansion in margin debt this year and that's the highest since 2011. Yeah. And so the the Taiwanese, I don't know what their like mark. It's the Taiwanese S and P 500, whatever that is. Basically, during that period, went up by about 19 percent, right? So it started as margin started increasing, the highest in a decade. The stock market also was going up pretty pretty significantly. And so, so then basically over. Yeah, I think the one day was 9%, but over the course of three days, I don't have this fact in front of me, but the, over the course of three days, it was something like 15% um, was the decline. And so I think it's just looking at the correlation between the, between those two things and then making 
an assumption, but it's crazy. Yeah, so uh, this is coming to the U.S. I just don't know when, right? I, I mean, we talked, gosh, it's probably 10 episodes back now, but we talked about debt doesn't matter until the price goes down. And things just continue to skyrocket around here. Uh, well, I guess there was a blip this week, but it's going to be so interesting. Like, I don't want this to come across the wrong way because it could sound wrong, but I'm like getting eager to watch it unfold in the U.S. because there's so many interesting storylines that come out of uh, kind of things pulling back a little bit. I think the uh, so this is another narrative that I tell myself. Sure, you can th throw out whatever, but but a narrative I've been telling myself recently is basically um, that the market is getting hit constantly. Right. There's always there's always stuff, ups and downs, right? There's a lot of volatility, always getting hit. Mm -hmm. And it's just I think it's when when it gets hit at the point of ultimate fragility is is when things start to tumble, right? It's not that there's uh, all the stories that end up coming out that are like, oh, this is the time because of inflation fears, or this is the time because of XYZ. Those things happen all the time. So it's yeah. like it's not because of that. It's when the inflation fear happens and we are at some breaking point where there are cash like extreme cash flow needs so then people need to sell or wh whatever the case might be it's like it's that extreme point where there's there's no support effectively because we're at the ultimate point of fragility now can you guess when that point is no right but i but i think that that's that's ultimately what it is but this stuff is, isn't different true i think uh it's probably just my psyche um but like this week that one day that we were down one and a half percent or whatever my portfolio actually performed really well and so it, it was weird but the you read like the news or hear the um sentiment at that point in time and i was like is this like is this the top is this the breaking point again this is probably entirely related to me and and nothing else it just feels like there's like the emperor has no clothes i mean there's limited positive stories that i know as to why we should be one of the most expensive stock markets ever i don't know i i don't understand why there's this much optimism and so when the inflation news hits um i was like is this potentially a tipping point yeah so the the thing is though the emperor has no clothes i think we can all agree emperor's buck buck naked right <laughs> but people got credit cards and so it doesn't matter. It's like, like the emperor has no clothes, but I'm on Rodeo Drive with my, my yeah. black Amex. And so I can just go buck wild crazy. Now, when that Amex, which apparently has an you know, unlimited credit cap, you realize yeah. it actually is limited. Like, and you get that call. That's, that's the issue. And so we just go, how many credit cards are out there? And when are they going to max out? Right? But the no, emperor but has to, no clothes, but we're trying to buy. Yeah, but to use your analogy, I, th I thought maybe what was happening with the inflation fears because the storyline about like cheap money low interest rates that's been going for a while it hasn't really showed up in inflation just yet and i'm not saying it's there like there's a lot of reasons why this number that came out this week is maybe overinflated but um it was like you had it was like the country had that black amx and they just kept spending and there were no ramifications and then i thought that, i mean there's gonna be a story it obviously wasn't this week where the country collectively goes, oh my, the black Amex doesn't work anymore for ABC reasons. And then things, things have to correct. But I don't want to, like, this isn't the doom and gloom podcast. I, don't, I didn't even intend to go down this road. Yeah, it's just interesting. about international stock market crashes?
Well, was hey, that? that was, yeah, Dougals, that was your fault. Kick Sorry, off the bro. show with the stock market crash and a margin call. Um, let's talk about something a little more fun, right? Do you know how many cars they wrecked in the Fast and the Furious series? How many? 1,487 cars at an estimated cost of at least $30 million. <laughs> Isn't that insane? That just feels wasteful <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't feel... we got people over here like worrying about recycling uh pop cans <laughs> and the fast and the furious is wrecking almost 1500 cars for what like yeah. 10 movies like yeah, this is exactly. insane how many movies are there oh th this is the first seven movies <laughs> they're wrecking like 200 plus cars a yeah, this is a you, movie you just uh swan dove into the uh the fishbowl there it's a it's a cool um it's a cool article. I think it's pretty interesting. The economics of movie placements in the hustle. I didn't realize what the way this industry worked. Yeah, so uh, sorry, I did dive into the fishbowl because I love this article so much. So we'll put it out on the Twitter. Let's let's give some basic facts to the listeners. Now, all these things, this is more art than science, I think, in estimating these values. But this article kicks off with the Tom Hanks movie Castaway, right? And tries to put an economic value to Wilson Volleyballs, which had 10 and a half minutes of screen time. The volleyball itself had 10 and a half minutes of screen time. Dude, Isn't that... Wilson's, Wilson's relationship with Tom Hanks in that movie is priceless. I don't even know why they're trying to put a value on that. <laughs> oh, you really got me there. Yeah, anyway, they estimate that screen time is worth almost $2 million in exposure for Wilson Volleyballs. And I'm not, I mean, if you talk about Super Bowl commercials and everything else, like, uh, that seems in the ballpark affair. It's crazy. Yeah, so, if you, I think you got a the weird thing about that one in particular, um, and you'll, I know you're going to hit on some of the other facts, is you have to look at the, like, general, I'll call it liquidity of products, usually, like, Someone's not going to watch Castaway and be like, I actually haven't even realized that I needed volleyballs and I'm going to go buy volleyballs. Like that's different than a consumer good like beer or something, right? You just go like, I bought exactly the same number of volleyballs after Castaway <laughs> as before Castaway. Can you guess that number? <laughs> Zero. Zero. But but you're, you're missing the cross-sell possibilities. I mean, the, you might have bought a basketball or football, and the Wilson brand might have been a little more appealing to you. Okay. And, okay. like, maybe you didn't buy a volleyball to play volleyball with, but maybe you brought, like, a, a volleyball to turn into your best friend. I mean, right? Well, I got to air my dirty laundry, though. <laughs> I thought it was uh, the, the bifurcation between the, the brands that pay and then those that that don't have to, I thought was pretty interesting. It was it was saying that uh, that generally speaking, and this is the way I thought the world worked, was generally speaking, people believe that uh, the brands you always pay. So like if you see a brand that's in a movie, there's a cash exchange, and they mentioned examples of that are Harley Davidson, Heineken, uh, Aston Martin for, for James Bond. But then it said the majority yeah. are not actually cash payments. It's just that movies cost so much. 65 million on average to produce is what I was saying. So movies cost so much that they spend millions of dollars on wrecking cars. And so if they can get free props, the more the more the merrier and brands are willing to get the exposure. And so there's like a whole industry of product placement agencies that exist. 
This reminds me of uh, almost government lobby lobbying. You know, it's kind of like mm. we're going to set up around Hollywood and find mutually beneficial relationships. Some things I didn't know, like in the George Clooney movie Up in the Air, he has like the Blackberry was product placement. The Hilton robes were product placement. Uh, it's yeah. just a fascinating article. But then like Ray-Ban didn't pay for exposure in Top Gun. They just got Tom Hanks to wear the sunglasses and that was a huge hit yeah which Reese's is weird with because e. he wasn't even in the movie so like that was just terrible product placement <laughs> why did i say tom hanks so i guess that did work you're still thinking about wilson see man it's like i'm going to buy some volleyballs after this anyway then some of the numbers i mean you mentioned this but like heineken paid 45 million for product placement with the James Bond movie Skyfall. That's insane. insane. I don't think there's any way insane. they got that level of exposure. And what BMW paid over a hundred million to supply cars for like the mid to late nineties uh Bond movies, which I think that's debatable. I remember those being prominently placed in those movies and kind of being like into the fact that they were used there. So it's good product yep. placement. But did they get a hundred million worth of it? Um, it's a really fascinating article. Thanks for sending it out, Douglas, and we'll put it on the Twitter. I think some of the some of the beauty in the world of marketing is a, uh, you know, you have insane amounts of attribution and tracking and data that marketers have now that they used to not. But in a world like this, you kind of can't fully track it. And so, was it worth a hundred million? There's some marketer somewhere that has a spreadsheet that says yes, right? Is is yeah. it really that, that like well, that's the answer? You can make the numbers up. Also, the I love this. Uh, there was a little fallout between uh, Reebok and the people that filmed Jerry Maguire, kind of like during the, during the filming, it sounded like. Is that how you read it, Diggles? And so they changed the script a little to uh, yep. paint Reebok in, from a positive light to a negative light. <laughs> and I think there actually ended up being a lawsuit about it. So that that's just so cool. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a cool article. It's an it's interesting industry. Fishbowl time? Let's do it. How would you feel about a quiz? I love being humiliated on national television or national podcasting, whatever this is. Yep. International. There, International. There we go. Yeah. I yep. forgot about our Latvian and our Guatemalan crew. Exactly. Um, so this goes back to a bet that you mentioned before. I can't, it's sometime recently. And you were talking about a bet between Mark Cuban and some other I person. I think it's Peter Malark. Oh, yeah, Peter Marlark. And so they were betting as to whether um, Dogecoin or a couple other stocks were going to beat the S&P 500 over the next decade, right? Yeah. So um, so I decided to do a little little playtime, a little data playtime. And I went back and looked at um, how many stocks over 10-year periods, over the last 100 years, basically, beat the stock market. In this case, the stock market is VTI because that's what I use in my data. Um, but it, anyway, it's basically the same, right? Overall stock market. So I want to give you a quiz and see how good you are. Some of these numbers are actually pretty surprising to me. So okay. I'm going to pick a couple years and I want you to, to tell me how many stocks, what percent of stocks you believe beat the overall market over the preceding decade. So let me ask um, some logistics in your back testing. Did you do like like rolling 10-year periods starting every year, or was it like the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, or all the above? Yeah, I, I did all the above. I basically just looked at from um, the data I have goes back to 1925. 
And sure. so I, I basically just said from 1934 through 2020, every year, what is the, the 10 years before? Of the previous 10 years. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, and then looked uh, at uh, the previous 10 years, like what percent for that year. So for example, like in 2020, if you go 2011 through 2020, what percent of companies that were around in 2020? And then I also looked at what percent of companies that were around in 2011 that were still around in 2020, right? So to get rid of any of that survivor you, Yeah, you bias, handled basically. the survivorship bias. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, this is interesting. Can you tell me, if this has to be after the quiz, that's fine, but was outperformance more likely long ago than it is today? Um, it's not quite that simple. Yeah, I'll, but I, I will I'll give a little more detail on why it's not quite that simple once we, we quizzelate and perpetrate. Okay, you ready for it? Yeah. So I'm going to choose the year 1999 in the preceding 10 years. Okay. What percent of companies beat the market? Got to think a little bit about what's happening in the market in that time. So I'm not, I'm staring clear of the 87 crash and everything else. Um, I'm going to say 18% of companies beat the market during that time. So about 10%, about okay. 10%. And that's taken, if you if you look at just the companies that were still around that year, it was a little over 20%. But Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, but a 10% because many, many didn't make it. We had many so give fallen me, brethren. Give me some of those names. Can you throw out some names that beat the market in 99? Uh, no, I don't, I don't have the names by year. Um, I can do that separately. That would just be oh, like, wow. way too much data. Th this quiz sucks. I mean, I'm sorry, like... I can do it. I did, I did pull the names for uh, 2020. Because I was just doing like, just checking sanity checks and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And the data, but uh, yeah. But then, so now I'm gonna let's go forward a decade, okay? Okay. And let's go to 2010. What percent of companies? So you know what's so interesting about the first example? Um, I'm gonna treat this like an interview where I give the listeners some of my thought process here. I, I, my initial guess was gonna be as in the 10% range, um, but I got a little cute thinking that maybe back in '99 it was more common for outperformance. Um, so I think most of my guesses are gonna be around 10%. Um, what happened in the decade preceding 2010 is obviously 2007 2008 crash so part of me wants to think that the survivorship the ability to survive that could that could have taken out even more companies i think i'm gonna guess on the lower side like maybe eight percent no you, you get you got your thought process a little bit reversed okay um it's logical like it's logical but but uh you're the way that you started thinking about it was right it's your the implication of it is what yeah. was reversed. So basically, if you if you uh, ignore survivorship bias for a moment and just look at the total number of companies um, that exist, or sorry, total number of uh, equities, I should say, because this includes uh, ETFs and stuff too, the total number yeah. of equities um, that existed in 2010 and what percent of those equities beat the stock market is actually almost 60%. No, I get however, it. So you're saying- however, However, if you take out survivor, like if you account for a survivorship bias, it's 27%. Yeah. And so basically it's uh this is going back to the question that you asked earlier around like, is it 
is it more or less likely, you know, over time, like have things changed there? It actually depends more on the cycles. Um, the, the time itself doesn't matter. It's when you look at it. And so a time like 1999, um, when the market is going, like the market's going cray, right? That's different than when the market itself tanks. Um, and so companies are more likely, or equities are more likely to have beaten the market uh, at a period where the market has gone down, down, clowns town, right? Versus uh, when the market's on the, the uppity ups. Well, um, yeah, this is actually a fun insight. Um, and I hope, I hope we articulate it well for the listeners. What you mean, I think, is companies that survive. So your subset of companies that started in what, 2001 for that last decade yeah. we talked about? Most of them didn't More, make it. Yeah, a lot of those companies didn't make it. So you had to, if, if it's a future looking bet, you had to pick in 2001. And in 2001, you were more likely that your company didn't even survive to 2010. But if your company survived, that company was more likely to beat the market. Yep. Right? Is yep. that the right way to say yep. it? Yeah, that's the right way to say it. And so if you look uh, over this roughly 100-year period, it's a little bit less. Uh, but the median percent, uh, accounting for survivorship bias, the median percent um, was 27, about 28% um, of surviving, of, of companies that beat the... Yeah. Uh, the market, uh, the minimum was what we talked about before, about 10%, 99. Uh, the max was 57%, which is straight up insane. Um, but that that came that came in that post-war era. So that was like in uh, basically the late 40s, early 50s was just like getting buck wild. Yeah, but let me make sure I'm understanding the math right, because in order for more than 50% of the companies to beat the index, we're calling it here, yep. um, you have to have a lot of companies going bankrupt, right? Because if the index is made up of a component of the performance of all the stocks, if more than half are outperforming, the ones that are underperforming have to be significantly underperforming, yeah, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. interesting. Can we do 2020 with names? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I want to give my guess as percentage. Uh, let's see if, I, let's see if I can, this requires some second level thought. So let's see if my logic Ooh, is right here. Love it. Uh, whew. so pretty much the last decade has been like pretty much straight up. I mean, there's nothing major, no major crashes in here. Really? Um, so what would you assume we... then lower or higher percent Yeah. based on what we just talked about? Yeah, so there's less companies going bankrupt. Uh, so I'm going to go on the lower side. I'm going to say it's like 13%. 14%. That's good. All right. Yeah, 14%. What's number one? What is the the number one through the end of last year, the number one best performing company over the previous decade? I mean, my cop-out answer would be Amazon. That would be your cop-out answer. It's incorrect. Yeah. Yeah, monster um, beverage or no, no think about it's, i mean this it's a it's an obvious one. Oh, tesla not to, yeah there you go tesla 41 times the market over the previous 10 years i don't know what uh what component of that 41 came just last year <laughs> but but it was a uh, but that was number one well so. wasn't it up something like 800 maybe i'm thinking trailing 12 months not rather than it was last something year. like that yeah it but... was i mean it was insane it's insane. I mean, so, so on that logic, 
gosh, that's crazy. I mean, the ad performance wasn't too great until you throw on that times eight in the last period. Um, Tesla, crazy. So how many stocks have outperformed? What? How many stocks make up that 13%? Uh, about a thousand, a little over a thousand. Okay. Yeah, that's good stuff. So, um, I love that you're the, the research superstar of this show, because I think there's some good insights to be had there, um, in terms of when indexing can be used to your advantage and maybe when it's not. Yeah. It actually turned out to be more interesting than I thought. Cause I, at first, just given that bet, you know, you, you'd thrown the question out to me of like, what two stocks would you choose? Right. And so then I started thinking, like, what's the likelihood of any two random stocks actually beating the market? Yeah, let's continue with this thought experiment, and the listeners can send us hate mail if they don't like it. By the way, hate mail is perfect at skippydoogles at Gmail and at skippydoogles on Twitter. So uh, we both would say, right, that some correction is coming in the next 10 years. I think that's like... I feel like that's a no-brainer, but I hate forecasts and I hate saying something's going to happen this year. But if you're talking over the next 10 years, um, I'm pretty confident, like probably 90% plus that a correction is coming, right? Oh, absolutely. Like you mean like a monumental multi-year decline? Yep. Yeah. I mean, we they come about every decade and we're overdue. So yeah, going out 10 years, like I would hope so. If it doesn't happen in the next 10 years, I will have a hundred percent of my portfolio international. <laughs> like there's, there's like, no, I want to touch the U S at all. Yes. So that means that if we say a correction is coming, uh, that means that if we manage to select a stock or two that is guaranteed, well, not guaranteed, but very likely to be around 10 years later. And this actually reminds me of the William Green anti-fragility uh, staying in the game conversation we had last yep. week, right? Yep. That our chances of outperforming the market are going to be boosted during that time frame. So I think if I was making a selection here, my first criteria would be I want something that's strong and steady and basically is unimaginable to not be around 10 years from now. Um, so that that leads to a different type of stock for sure. I, I've thought about this and I've really struggled with this. I uh, because I think forecasting is so hard when the time horizon goes out to ten years and you're talking about an individual equity. I have a hard time um, knowing what the future looks like in ten years. I, I feel like you're better equipped um, to kind of think about what life might be. 10 years out. I don't know that that means you, you'll, <laughs> you'll nail it. But um, it, do you struggle with that? Like me? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really it's hard, because I think your, your thought process makes a lot of sense. Like what's gonna, I'll, I'll throw another uh, variable in there. As you said, what's going to be around, like what's likely to be around? And what's likely to have some gas in the tank too, right? Like Tootsie Roll, very likely to be around. Tootsie Roll is like the most mediocre performing stock of any period, I think, right? And so you you kind of need both of those. Um, and so do you go the route of, I'll say blue and true, you know, like a blue chip, like going to be yeah. around? Or do you go the route of uh, something that's IPO'd recently because like recently as in the last few years? Yeah. Because it probably has a lot of gas in the tank, right? Um, but also needs to be around. And so I think it is tricky. Um, I know the two that I would choose, but uh, but it's... And one, one I feel pretty good about with the matching both of those criteria. 
one, I, I, it could coin flip as to whether or not it's around, not because of a bankruptcy situation, but um, it reg regulation could take it down or it could be acquired pretty easily. So let, let me throw in one more thought because I want to keep the listeners on their toes. They're just so eager for your pick. But uh, I think this would be easy. Well, significantly easier if valuations were average to below average. Like if we were having this conversation in 2008, I think I could have found uh, Amazon or an Apple or a Microsoft that was fairly valued and been like, absolutely, I'll read this for 10 years. I think my struggle here is all those blue and true companies, the valuations are absolutely insane in my eyes right now. So I know that that's a significant headwind that goes against me. But let's see how you solve this problem. Yeah, well, we won't know for a decade. But, um, or, or maybe we'll know before then, because this year, both of these companies go bankrupt. But uh, the two that I would choose are one is Pool Corporation. That's the one that I feel most strongly about. Um, yeah. They just, they're like the, the well-performing cockroach of the, <laughs> they, they will not die. Um, people just, when the, um, when the market goes down, people still love their pools, man. They like cling to their pools. Market goes up, they're inviting their friends over to come get in the pool. They just like, so a pool corporation. And the, the second one is much, much, much riskier. Um, but I love this stock. Like it's the, it's the one that I, and this is right. As we always say, not investment advice. No one else needs to go love this stock. I just, I think this business model is sick, but that's why I think uh, regulation is actually a pretty um, likely, I would say, especially in this yeah. current regime, but Transdime Group is a stock I am all about. So they are, they're like the, um, they're the, the man behind the man behind the curtain when it comes to like, uh, I say aerospace broadly, but like airplane parts and whatnot. So basically what they do is they sell, they sell all of the aftermarket parts to like the Boeings, et cetera, of the world. And they do it, they, they have, um, they have like a lock on the market. To a certain extent and so they charge like ridiculous prices um for these parts because they they like got it on lockdown which is why i think the government at some point the government the government's gonna shut that down but uh but yeah but they have their revenue model revenue model margins are like ridiculous um so those are my two that i would choose i mean i think you've let the bubble go to your head here you talked about airplanes and pools which are both like as pro-cyclical uh spending categories as i can think i'm, I'm gonna fly my plane right into the water i'll tell you that much <laughs> i'll tell you i did give this significant thought i don't have a pick and i don't know if that means i'm gonna get kicked off the podcast or not but um i went back through some of my screens and you know when i rebalanced last year and i've had a really good year i'm up like 70 80 percent uh with value stocks which almost never happens right um I had basically 10 Wait, stocks sorry, in is, the portfolio. Is that uh, over the last 12 months or, or year to date? Uh, trailing 12 months. Okay, cool. I mean, either yeah. either either one is... It's ridiculous. It's great, yeah, yeah. but yeah. Tra trailing 12. And so I went back through some of those screens trying to find deals. You know, we went through the Seth Klarman uh, 13F a while back. Like, basically, there's one stock. There's one stock in the entire universe of U.S. stocks that is worth doing a little research and it's one I already own. It's TDS Corporation. Yep. And that is up 
I'm not, this is not a brag session and none of this is investment advice. That's up, I don't know, something like 30% year to date because I bought it in one of my other accounts. So I don't feel like that's screaming cheap either. Basically, I'm just not finding anything, man. And that's really perplexing. That uh, makes my life hard. I don't know, my next rebalance is coming up and and I'm going to have to think hard about how I handle that because I can't find any deals. It's like you said, I'll probably dig heavily into the international markets. Um, even the commodities conversations we've had previously, like those have really run. You were you were front running on that, Dougals. And um, I like that strategy, but they've run so much. I don't know that I consider any of those commodities treat. I mean, it's just, yeah, I know. What was me over here? I, I'm going to cry myself a river. There's nothing to buy. <laughs> you and Justin Timberlake, man. <laughs> yeah, go seriously. Hang out in the corner. How about this then? How about this? Choose a number between one and four thousand two hundred fourteen. I'm gonna go three thousand one hundred and twenty-three. Three one two three. All right. So this has got funds and stocks in them. All right. So you, Skippy, are choosing East West Bank Core Inc. Okay. Choose another number. <laughs> uh, give me. Give me straight threes. Give me 3,333. You sticking in the 3,000s, huh? Okay. Yeah. Straight threes. I oh, like W. Granger. Oh, I, W. Granger. Yeah. Quality companies there. All right. Um, there you go. Okay, so we got your two. So we'll just random. Random random yeah. equities. Let's see. It's uh, so when, when you when you guys <laughs> listen to episode whatever, 2,644. You'll know. <laughs> you know, I asked Dougals this week if I could pick an ETF instead of an individual stock for this competition. And and you didn't like that, did you? You can choose one. There's only one ETF you can choose, but I'll let you choose it. <laughs> What's that? Arc Innovation. <laughs> if you want that one, I'll, I'll give you that one all day. Can I short Arc Innovation <laughs> for 10 years? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, uh, that's too much. Cool. Oh, yeah, we, we, we got our stocks, man. I actually love the approach. Yeah, uh, my two random stocks are definitely going to be your two pro cyclical. Let's go fly a pool into an airplane. <laughs> I'm flying pools into airplanes all day. <laughs> <laughs> What's in your fishbowl? Yeah, a uh, couple things. Can we just can we just talk Elon Musk and Bitcoin? I mean, we don't have to spend much time on it, but it's interesting, though. What he did this week so spit yeah so so for those who don't know um elon has been a big fan of crypto cryptocurrencies for a long time uh i think his fascination started with bitcoin would you say that's fair Dougals? lately he's been a dogecoin guy the doge father anytime i hear so his his tweets literally move markets in this space uh dogecoin more than bitcoin because it's a less developed and smaller market cap currency yep. but um certain things he can do or say can cause the supply or the price to go up 10 percent, right um which is just crazy it, it's absolutely yeah, crazy, it's crazy but it is crazy. what it is so he tweets out a thing uh i think this is thursday gosh earlier this year i think it was tesla made news by saying they would accept bitcoin to buy a car so basically you walk in you don't even have to pay cash you just transfer your bitcoin 
and you buy the car. Uh, and then Thursday, he comes out and says, after we reviewed this, we've decided we no longer accept Bitcoin because of the environmental impact. So first, that schizophrenic nature, like, do you really think he learned anything new about Bitcoin's energy consumption in the past few months? Or do you think the board got to him? What do you think is driving this decision? I mean, there, there could be a lot in there, but I, uh, the the most generous, I guess, to the organization, not to Elon himself, but to the organization would be that people just kept saying, dude, I understand that you are obsessed with this. However, you know that we make electric vehicles in a claim that we're trying to save the environment, right? And I think it yeah. just like, like we, that incongruence, we can't get over. So I think yeah. that that's the most generous to the organization. I And I think that's maybe the most likely as well. I think that's probably what happened because regardless of his personal beliefs, it doesn't really add up. I mean, Tesla also has a solar panel company and yep. a thousand other things. It's entirely branded on better for the environment. So it was a very, it was an odd stance to start, I think. Yeah. I mean, well, that, that's um, where he likes to start. Show me the odd stances and I shall take them. <laughs> oh, so yeah. good. I'm reading uh, Bill's How to Avoid a Climate Disaster right now. Um, oh, yeah. So it, it fits fits right in there. Is this is it? Is that like chapter three? Like tell uh, Musk to stop taking Bitcoin? Pretty much. It's a, it reads like uh, so far every seventh sentence is some version of I know this sounds like doom and gloom. However, I don't mean to be doom and gloom. And then the next sentence is, so everything's going to crap. Like that, that's that's basically how the how the book reads. I actually think it's pretty interesting. Um, but I'm like maybe a quarter of the way through. So I still have more, a lot more to go. Yeah, I'm sure it's good. Gates is a smart guy. I, I just have uh, one more thing I wanted to chat about today. And it's more just to get your initial reaction. Because we talk about in incentives on the show, right? And how so much of business is based on structuring incentives in the right way. Well, the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine, um, took $5 million of federal money and created five weekly lotteries of a million dollars each for vaccinated individuals. I guess mm. the main thing I thought during this, and I've thought this for the last 15 months, is college students of this generation are so lucky because there's so many real time experiments happening around yeah, that's true. incentives and everything else that they're going to have the data for soon. And they're going to say this state did this with mask or this governor did this with incentives or this government did this. And I just think it's, uh, I I'm super jealous of the college students. I, I think that's my main reaction, but then I also wanted to get your take and maybe it's not specifically on this incentive, but maybe if you're in that seat, Dougals, like if you're a governor of a state and you've decided that you want to do everything in your power to increase vaccination rates, what type of ideas are you throwing out to your staff and maybe trying to, uh, make happen? I don't know specific ideas cause I haven't thought too much about this, but I, I do think uh, incentivizing the crap out of getting people to get vaccinated is the way I would go independent of, of my, um, of my like political beliefs. I think going back to something that, uh, that William Green was saying was he's like, I, I don't want to get political. However, can we just say like, if you do these things, regardless of what I believe, if you do these things, you're more likely to survive. And I would yeah. like for my state to survive. And so I think having strong incentives for folks to 
um, to get vaccinated because I the like mask wearing I think can become political real quick and there's you know there's a lot around that yep. but yep. Um, and I know vaccines also has a political bend but it's like look I want our economy to have like a strong foothold and I want my people to survive and so whatever it takes the the economic dollars I mean five million sounds like incredibly cheap re relative to the amount that you're going to be able to generate in economic dollars if you can reopen and and get get herd immunity going on right and so i i throw the the kitchen sink out the windy defenestration bro yeah that was kind of my initial thought and so to tie together a couple things what william was saying last week in the interview again was i i don't see it as political it was it tied directly to his book it was like I talk to the world's best probabilistic thinkers about how they make decisions. And if someone like Edward Thorpe was in this situation, he'd be saying my greatest chance of success for my economy and, and a bunch of other things is to do X, Y, Z. I thought when I first saw this headline, I thought Ohio was using $5 million of like their state funds. And I was going, that's going to be a tough sell, but I'll bet you money. If you run the numbers that, 95% of the time you get more than $5 million in economic impact if you get to the point where it's truly like life is normal. Now, I think that's debatable. And <laughs> the, despite the fact that we don't give investment advice on this show, one thing we give even less of is scientific advice on <laughs> vaccines or health and safety. But it, yeah, this kind of seems like a no brainer. I think if I was in the office and I chose to do some sort of cash gift, I'd try and make it so the odds are really good. So if your state has, say, 5 million people in it and I'm giving away $5 million, I might do a bunch of smaller drawings where, like, your chance of winning a thousand bucks is pretty high. You know, maybe it's like one in 10 people that get vaccinated win a thousand bucks. I don't know if that math works out, but I think you know where I'm going because sometimes this lottery of, oh, well, I'm never going to win the million dollars uh works yeah. against the grain um yeah. whereas it, it, if i knew there's a one in 10 chance of me winning a thousand bucks like gosh you hop on it. i like those odds yeah. there's another uh another way that and this both of us i think are ignoring the the ultimate roi math around it but just throwing out ideas the yeah. um another way i just i just thought about it is you if you have it over a longer time frame but incentivize the speed at which someone gets vaccinated so um, if you get vaccinated in the next two weeks, you actually get like 10 tickets in the lotto. If you get it over like in, in three weeks, then you get like five tickets. If you get it in four weeks. Right. And so and in three months, we're going to have yeah. like several drawings. And then but the, the your likelihood increases based on the speed at which you get vaccinated. Yeah. I don't know how complex this starts to get, but 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 incentivize, I think, is kind of what we're we're both saying. Hey, I think it. I mean, I'm intrigued by the possibility. And then um, this actually ties into, you know, the book I'm in the middle of right now is the Michael Lewis new book, The Promo, Promo uh, Nation. Yeah. Excited to see what you think. And what what's so crazy, uh, I'm, I haven't read it, so I don't want to make any grand conclusions, but as the vaccine rollout was happening, there was this, this lingering doubt in the back of my head, like, they were prioritizing the older crowd and I totally get why they did it. And I'm not even saying I disagree with it, but I was going, listen, the 80 year old grandma is not the super spreader. Like it, it just never really added up to me. And I thought maybe like a random, 
uh, distribution would have a better approach to sl slowing the spread or maybe targeting the people that we think are high transmitters. And there is some mention in this Michael Lewis book of a researcher, uh, and I'm going to forget the name, I think the last name is Green, who did some like computer models around this and basically came up with a suggestion that you could, if you would have targeted um, like your 18 to 32 year old crowd with the initial vaccination rollout, that would have stopped the spreading so much that you actually could have, according to their model, saved more lives. So I just yeah. thought that was a really interesting thing. And it kind of all ties back in here because yeah. I didn't even hear that approach debated. And it seemed it seemed weird that there was just like a one size fits all approach across the world for the vaccine rollout, right? Yeah. Yeah. These decisions are hard. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and get in touch with us. At Skippy Doodles on Twitter and skippydoodles at gmail.com. Yes.